So Exodus chapter 17 from verse 8 to 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up onto the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Following on in chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all, all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the, status, the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, 
and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case, they brought to Moses. But any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. We're going to continue reading uh, from Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rehabedim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the mountain, while Moses went up to, the, up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that shall speak to the people of Israel. Would you join with me in prayer? God, you are holy. You are mighty. You are just. You are righteous. And you are ever so compassionate. Father in heaven, whether we are weary, joyful, or in between, whether we are feeling overwhelmed, as we consider these truths this morning in your word, both individually and as your people, would you please make yourself known to us? Holy Spirit, I pray and ask as our comfort, our helper, the one who convicts, draw our gaze to the great Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable acceptable because of Christ alone, for his glory alone, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, friends, one of the things, I know that it's a bit chilly and we've got the heaters going and so on. Part of the current restrictions is we've got to have airflow and all those kind of things. So just bear with us and um, thank you for your grace in that. And maybe give the person next to you a hug uh, or something. <laughs> Uh, this morning, uh, we want to continue uh, our series uh, in, the, uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, and if you're visiting for the very first time, thank you for coming. My name is Shabir, one of the pastors here. We've been taking our time through the book of Exodus. Last week, we came into this amazing, powerful moment where the people of Israel have been rescued from slavery and captivity. But it was fascinating, right? We saw that all of a sudden they're in the desert and what happens? They're grumbling. Uh, They're using Aussie language. They're whinging to God. But yet, God is ever gracious to them. He provides for them in food and even water. And then we have this refrain that is in chapter 17. It's up here on the screen if you'd like. And it says in verse 7, And he called the name of the place Massah. In Meribah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they taste, tested the Lord by saying, "Is the Lord among us or not?" We know that as we explored Exodus, and then we saw last week, is God amongst them? Of course, He is. He's provided for them. Even more, not only that, He's provided food for them, but now in the passage in front of us, God is the one who will protect them. This morning, I want us to consider three things. Firstly, I want us to consider the Lord who fights, goes into battle, the Lord who saves and is great, and the Lord who sees his people as his treasured possession. Um, If I asked you, this is a bit of audience participation, so this could go really well or really bad. We'll see how we go. If I asked you about um, arch nemesis, people who are, you know, committed uh, against someone else, 
uh, particularly when you think about superheroes, okay? So if I asked you, who is the arch nemesis of Superman? Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor. Well done. <laughs> Some people are not sure. There's arguments later on. After. <laughs> Batman? Joker? Yeah? Oh, oh no, not sure. Okay. Luke Skywalker? Sorry? Darth Vader. Da- oh, no. Some said Darth Vader. The Force? The Dark Force? Does anyone know at all? Does Shibu know what he's talking about? No. <laughs> I feel like all the Star Wars fans are going to get me later after the service. Now, it's a silly illustration, right? Arch nemesis and all those kind of things. But what you've got to remember, in biblical history, and we don't fully understand this. We live in Australia. We're in Kilsyth, 3137. We've got grass and greenery, and we don't, in a sense, have this feeling that there are enemies surrounding us at any point about to take over our country. Uh, Israel, that was the reality for them. Constantly, throughout Israel history, that was what they were facing. But not only that, the idea of the various threat that was there, that was real enemies, real armies that were committed to destroying this nation, there was also a picture of the spiritual enemy. See, here in this moment, you have the Israelites who are now earlier had this threat of grumbling. That was the threat that was coming amongst from the, within the people. That was the threat. They were turning their face and gaze away from God. Now there's an external threat. The threat are the Malachites. They come to fight Israel. Now, this is a very brief history. You can read up about this if you'd like. Uh, it's very important in the story of the Bible. The Malachites were the descendants of Esau. That's very important to remember when you study the Bible. By now, they're Bedouin people. They're nomads. Uh, they're actually currently, at the time of the Bible, living at the edges, and they would actually uh, be living in the borders of Israel as they walk into the Promised Land. Uh, and using biblical language, or our language really, they would become the arch nemesis, traditional enemies of Israel. Now they've come to attack There's no reason given here in this particular passage, uh, but what we need to do now is jump away from Exodus and go to another passage in the book of Deuteronomy. It's up here on the screen. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off. You cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land, the Lord your God has given you for all inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Uh, it's a picture and a powerful statement in that this is a cowardly army. Uh, they don't come from the front and attack from the front. They come from behind and attack those who are weak, the weary, the elderly, and they attack the stragglers. They attack from behind. Uh, the very nation itself, or the very leader themselves, is described as how he did not fear God. They are a nation or a people group, and the very leader himself does not fear God. It's a moment and, and a reminder again that Israel has threats all around them. And this is nothing new, that they face someone who does not believe or fear the God of Israel. It happened with Pharaoh, do you remember? But it is a picture also that when someone or a people or a very nation does not fear or have an awe and reverence of the God of the Bible, when they come up against God and his people... What they do not see is that they are coming up against God himself. It's sobering. It's a reminder of who God is. That he is the one who goes into battle for his people. And in verses 9 to 13, and I love this story, and if you have a little one, I'd encourage you to read it with them. You have this amazing scene. 
And now if you're new to the Christian faith or exploring the Christian faith or you're listening in, I want you to know the very words that are in front of you, we at this church believe it actually happened. It's not a made-up story. It actually happened. And you have this powerful image. Both Moses goes into battle and Joshua as well. Moses heads to the top of the hill, along with him, the staff of God. Do you remember the staff of God? The story of Exodus, right? The one that turns into snakes. The one that parts the sea. The one that is involved in the plagues. The one is the staff that God renamed. And now we meet in the story and narrative of Exodus a very important name. Did you pick it? Who is it? Joshua. We hear and meet this person for the very first time. One who would become the future leader of this nation. He's given instructions. He's given a battle plan to head out and go into battle. So Joshua goes into battle and so does Moses. But in a different way. I want you to imagine for a moment on the top of the hill, there's Moses, uh, there's Aaron, who's now become the priest of Israel. There's a gentleman by the name of Hur. Uh, He actually comes from a fairly significant godly family. His son would actually be Caleb, who would be the grandfather of Bezel, who would be involved in building the tabernacle. And not only that, later in the history of Israel, would become a judge. So these are all key leaders for the future of this nation. We have Joshua in a battle with his men. We have Moses and Aaron also in battle with her. But it's a different kind of battle. Picture this scene where there's so much going on here. Uh, whenever his arm is up, there's victory. When his arms get tired, the enemy comes and takes over. So the other two get involved. There's rocks and there's even them trying to hold up the hand. Can you imagine? Till sunset. This battle is going on. Eventually, the victory belongs to Israel. So what do you do with this in 2000? And 21. Uh, Is the idea that you and I, when we face potential threats, we grab a bunch of our friends and we head to the top of Mount Dandenong, we raise our hands and go to war? Now, raising hands uh, and this picture that's given in front of us is a very significant thing in biblical terms. Uh, Raising hands if you went to a hand raising church. Hey, great. Welcome. Now, for those of us who have gone in hand-raising churches, it's a bit hard for us. You know, I know there's different versions of hand-raising. But the, the idea is that in a, the Hebrew mindset, particularly a Jewish leader, what they're doing is, if we want you to picture for a moment, visualize it for a moment. I don't, I don't know if I look like Moses, but the idea is he's got his hands raised. He's looking to the heavens. What do you think he's doing? Friends, what we have is a picture of prayer. Moses is not doing some sort of superstitious thing. What we've seen displayed is Moses praying. He's growing up to the Lord, raising his hands. He's interceding on behalf of his people. This is what Moses' role is. It's a pretty significant role. He's like a mediator. He represents... God comes to God and represents his people's requests. And throughout Exodus, you will see this over and over again. Moses goes and represents his people. So in this moment when he stands on that hill with the staff and hands raised, is as though, as one commentator beautifully put it, he's elevating the entire nation before the throne of grace. It is a powerful scene. It is also... A picture of a human, a man with huge responsibility, but also we see his weakness. He needs help. I mean, the biblical language is that he's actually quite weary. His hands are getting tired. It's not an easy task. So you have his countrymen down below. When he lowers his hands, seeing them overtaken. When he raises his hands, it goes well. And you've got to remember... In the Bible, in this moment, Moses is pretty old. Physically, he's exhausted. It's hard work. But it is a beautiful picture 
as well of long, persistent prayer is like. It's a battle. I mean, it is a physical battle in this picture here, in this Bible verse, in the verses in front of us, but it depicts for us a spiritual battle. And you know, many of us are experiencing that right now, are we not? That sense of weariness, you're praying and crying out to the Lord. You're praying for that loved one who has walked away from the Lord and you're crying out to him over and over again, Lord, please. Those prayers that you feel, the very evil and pressures around the world coming into your space. And you're persisting and crying, Lord, would you please answer? These prayer requests you bring before the throne of grace, day after day. You may not be physically standing there with your hands up and you might, but in your heart you definitely are, I'm assuming But see, this picture and the weakness that Moses has is also us. It's actually a hint now that we need a better and greater mediator. The one who not only alone would go to a hill, but the one who has direct access to the throne of our great God. In this moment, and I want you to notice here, Moses can't do it on his own. He needs Joshua on the battlefield. You have Aaron and her. It's actually a whole community of leaders persevering together to battle against evil, the threat that's there. And in this moment, there's victory. Actually, the language is pretty powerful. It's that Joshua makes Amalek completely powerless. Now, why is this possible? Uh, Is it because of the way that Moses was standing was perfect and exactly how he should? Uh, Friends, no. It's because God answered and God brought the victory. That's why it's possible. If you look with me in Exodus 17, verses 14 to 16, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will give of war with Amalek from generation to generation. You've got to remember, in the story of the Bible, altars, and particularly altars, have a few purposes, right? And in this moment, Moses built one to actually honor God, the one who has given him victory. He knows where the victory has come from. It is God himself. God is the one who's gone into that battle. This is an altar of thanksgiving, Moses knows this. It is by God's gracious favor that they have this victory over their enemy. It is the Lord himself who has gone out into the battle and fought on their behalf. It is the Lord who has given them victory over their enemies. And along with the altar that's there to represent and give praise to God and give thanks to God, God himself commands Moses to write something down. And the beautiful language is, is, Moses, I want you to whisper this to Joshua constantly and continuously. And at this moment, it's like saying God is promising. It's a pretty powerful promise. That the promise is that the Amalekites will be totally blotted out of under the heavens. Moses is commanded to recite this to Joshua often. It is a powerful picture, friends. It's revealing who God is. What happens when those who are against him and come up against him, that God will deal with them. And also it's a hint to what is to come, that Joshua is being formed to be the next leader. The language of a scroll of remembrance, it's like saying, here, I want you to take this, I want you to read this, I want you to remind this to yourself over and over again. Why? So you remember that God is the one who's given you the victory. They need to remember God is the one who has fulfilled his promises in his timing. And you know what? This battle will come again. Israel as a nation throughout the Old Testament over and over again are constantly in battles, whether from within themselves or external battles. And this language of the Lord is my banner is a way of saying the enemies themselves have lifted their hand against the hand of the Lord. 
against his throne. And yet, we as his people have lifted our hands through the throne of grace that is the Lord who is our banner. And he's heard our cry. The name given is another name of the Lord. And you can find this. It's called Yahweh Nissi. You may already know this. The Lord is my banner. Dear friends, this is warfare language. You know, in the movies, particularly the more and more times we've seen, where you've seen these old movies of King Arthur and others, where they raise a flag. And they wave the flag. It's a depiction of this flag belongs to a particular king and kingdom. That this banner would be raised in a pole. It was something that if you were soldiers on the ground, you would look to see if that banner is there. It was both the rallying point, but also say, yes, we are still in this battle. We are still winning. We've got this. The battle is not lost. What Moses is saying, though, is the real true banner, Israel, is God himself. He's the one who has gone and fought for you. And he's the one you have to come back to and look to for hope. It is a powerful battle cry. It's like if you can imagine a whole army standing against their enemy and crying out in a loud voice in one chorus... The Lord is my banner. This past week, I had the great joy to visit some people who have joined, joined our church. And on the way to their house, there was a front lawn full of poppies. Now, today is, or this weekend is Anzac weekend. It's a moment to remember the sacrifice of service, servicemen and women. And I think, this is just a side note, that in our Australian culture, it's becoming almost like a religious holiday, a religious moment. Where we think, we pause, we reflect. And those moments when we see like the badge or the poppy or these different things, and we remember. We remember the security we have, the safety and even the sacrifice. See, the passage in front of us reminds us of something or to cause us to stir, is the Lord your banner? Is the Lord your banner? Because the very statement reveals who God is. It's his very character. It is who he is. That he is our hope. It should cause us to ask the question, in your life and my life, is the Lord our banner today, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday, on Monday, Tuesday, is the Lord your banner, my banner? Another way to put it is, what do we, you and I, put our hope and security in? Even the very notion when we are in battle of any kind, to win over our enemies, what do we put our hope in? And those seasons of difficulty, those battles, whether it's internal battles or pressures externally, who and where do we look for courage? And you know what? If you're exploring the Christian faith, you and I are constantly using the language here, constantly chasing many banners in our world to find our security, our hope and our identity in. But we'll never find it. Those banners may look very different for some of us. A bank account statement is our banner and security. Our savings is our banner and security. The political party that we love is our banner and security. Our very kids and grandkids are our banner and security. Getting that contract that win at work is our banner and security. The growth of this church is our banner and security. Maybe if it's our own methods to fight the very sin and temptation and spiritual battles that we face is our banner and security. You and I are tempted to this day to put our hope in many banners. Yet the invitation to all of us is to look to the Lord. The Lord who is our banner. The Lord who goes into battle for us. 
Friends, what's going on in your heart and my heart today that says, put your hope, put your trust in this banner? Or maybe you yourself are feeling that you are in the very trenches and battles that you're in. The question is, whom am I and you looking to? The Lord invites you and I to look to him, the one who is the true banner, the one who fights for you and me. What's fascinating is, as Moses is proclaiming this and reminding Joshua, the Israelites would actually face the Amalekites again later on. When they face them this time, they forget. They forget who the banner is. It ends up them wandering in the desert for 38 years. Later on, they come back in the history of Israel, and they face them again, and with this with King Saul. And he's commanded to destroy them, but he doesn't. And it's not till Samuel and, um, Samuel and King David that it would be done. What it's a picture is that God will ultimately do his plan. But it's a powerful statement that anyone who raises their hand against the Lord, and even his people, will have their day. They will have their day. Our call is not to look to ourselves, but to look to the one who is our banner. Now you have a king and a foreigner who does not in any way worship the Lord of Israel. The one who comes up against God. The one who's willing to defy God. Now you meet someone in stark contrast with Jethro. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. We met him earlier in Exodus, right? So if you look in chapter 18, verse 1, you're going to ask, why did he come? Have a look. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses, for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So what's happened is Jethro has heard the news. He's heard what's going on. He's heard what God has done. And he wants to come and hear the very words from his son-in-law. And I would have loved to have been a fly in that conversation, in that tent, wherever they met. To hear the beautiful conversation going on. You have this testimony from Moses verse 8. Did you pick up what he said? Who's the hero of the story? It's not Moses. It's not Israel, it is God himself. He speaks of how the Lord, what he has done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And in the midst of a hardship, the Lord has delivered them. Moses is in a sense, and really what he's doing is he's sharing the good news of who God is and what he has done. In the first interaction, Moses doesn't go into much detail about the experience that he had inside with the bush. But this time he goes into detail. And notice the details. Now this is very like ancient Near East Hebrew custom. He bows down and kisses him. In laws, let's take note for that. He asks how he's doing. So you, I think on a very simple note, it's a beautiful way, that Moses just doesn't jump into sharing what God has done. He asks him, how are you? It's a good thing for us to maybe consider before we talk to people about God, just to simply ask, how are you? And he explains, he summarizes what everything that God has done. Another way of putting it is that Moses speaks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He speaks about the plagues, the firstborn, the crossing, and so on. It's sharing who God is, his very character, and how he has delivered them. What Moses is doing here is when he's telling, he's actually proclaiming the good news of salvation. Jethro's response is beautiful. Look with me in 10 to 12. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in his affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro Moses, his father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrificed to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. There is so much going on here. It's a wonderful picture, an echo of what is to come. You've got to remember, Jethro is not an Israelite. He's actually a Midianite. His response is actually in stark contrast from the very people of Israel. And not only that, the Amaleks. He's believing in this moment. And that is by confessing who God is and bringing offerings of sacrifice. 
what we have in front of us. Jethro responds to show how, in many ways, that both Amalekites and the Israelites should have responded more and more to who God is. But also, there's an echo of what is to come. God is pointing forward that he himself will draw strangers and aliens to be his people. It's pushing us forward to God's great plan of salvation. And in the story of the Bible, it's amazing because he comes and makes a meal. Now, you've got to remember, remember who the Midianites are. If you look it up in the story of the Bible, you've got to remember who they are. They are also ancient Israel's enemies. So they're having a meal together. It was a Midianite who actually brought Joseph into slavery to Egypt. It was the one who later, God says to Israel, the days of Gideon, you need to harass them. But here at this moment, this person wants peace. See, one nation wants to destroy a people of God. This person, at midnight, wants to bring peace. The question is, if you're reading this from the world that's in that time, looking in, the question is still the same. What will your response be to the God of the Bible? Will you go to war with him? Or will you hear who he is and what he has done and respond in faith and submission to him? I think Jethro did believe in God of the Bible. He welcomes God and he's welcomed into fellowship. I mean, we know this, right? When we have a meal with someone, it actually shows fellowship and peace. And then throughout the Bible, meals are so important. And we know even today we experience the communion meal as a remembrance of the peace that we have. And even the day that is to come of the great feast when Jesus returns. See, this picture is much more about a salvation of one man that actually reveals who God is. The Lord who saves. It's the Lord who is great. I mean, so much of this is revealing that his heart is for the salvation of the world. We're seeing God now hinting to his greater purpose, to bring people into relationship with him. And it's a proclamation to the world around. Will you come? Or will you be against me? Or will you give your life and submission to me? And the question is still the same today. Will you fight against the Lord of God? Will you give your life to Him? Friends, um, if you don't know who God is, I want you to know something. The reason why Canterbury Gardens Community Church, the reason why Christians exist, the very reason that we have the many testimonies that are represented in this room, is to actually point people to the God of the Bible. That God alone is the one who can rescue you and me from slavery and sin. That God is the one who will fight for your souls. And dear friends, he has. And today might be the very first time you've ever been confronted with that thought to consider that. Do you know that God alone is greater? He alone is great. We would invite you to consider and seek him. The question we have for you this morning, for all of us, are we going to war against the God of the Bible? Or will we bow down and worship to him? Christian friends, in a world that continues to communicate to you and me that life should be about ourselves, that's not the story of the Bible. That's not what we're called to. Our very existence is beyond us. It's to point people to this God of the Bible, to proclaim this message that God has rescued us. I don't know about you, many of us are very always tempted to proclaim many good news. Maybe we need to get back to the basics of proclaiming the good news. I want you to remind you and me, do we use every opportunity? Those moments when we're hanging out with our kids, our grandkids, our uncles and aunties in our workplace, to reveal who God is through his word, to proclaim this good news and to remind them and show them and explain to them how God has rescued you and me. Whether it's in a whisper or walking along with them. And I know in this church, because I've met with some of you, I've wept with some of you, 
that those of you have loved heights. Loved ones, sons and daughters, sisters, brothers, grandkids, uncles and aunties, husbands and wives, mums and dads, who do not know this news yet, who doesn't know the Lord yet, the Lord hears your cry. And we also want to join with you in praying for them. We want you to know at Canterbury, we want you to bring that burden. We want to kneel with you before the throne of grace and cry out to the Lord who is the Deliverer. Jethro now has experienced God's grace. He is saved. He shows that. And now he comes and gets involved in Moses' life. He gives some, in a sense, leadership advice. Jethro, you um, see something interesting as he watches Moses. He spends some time with them. Using our term, uh, it's sort of become a one-man show. Right? Now, I don't think Moses is fixated in control and power. Uh, I think he's quite the opposite. Rather, he knows the responsibility and the weight that he carries for God's people. God in his grace provides a father-in-law who comes along and talks about actually much more than delegation. I know there's been leadership talks on these things, but what it's driving into is showing his very character who God is. The kind of people you want to gather around you. Because you know what? Character matters much more than skill in the story of the Bible. See, Jethro knows that if Moses continues to do this, he will burn out. And not only that, he knows that the people will burn out. It's a humorous way of saying, uh, Moses, if you don't want to have any more trouble, seriously get some people to help you. Otherwise, you're going to have a whole group of people complaining on how long they're waiting to see you. Get some help. Moses can't do everything. And it's a beautiful reminder that Moses is not God. He can't be everything to everyone. So Jethro's plan is, okay, this is what you need to focus on, Moses. Bring the cases before God. This is the mediator role that you have. Important, keep doing that. Warn them, teach them. God's commands and statutes, this is still your role. Now, you can't delegate this, one to, this particular role to anyone, Moses. This is yours, okay? You just got to carry it. That's what you have to carry. You're the prophet. But then, gather a team. Not just any team, but people who are able. Uh, the biblical language is actually very tied to the language of mighty men of valor. These are people who are respected and respectful, influential, powerful, respected amongst the leaders and seen as leaders in their community. But did you pick the footnote of what kind of person they're looking for? God-fearing men. Trustworthy men of truth. It's actually quite countercultural. And there's no talk about uh, what's your CV, what's your work experience. Uh, do you have any references? Uh, what's your educational background? What kind of financial status do you have? Uh, what kind of skills do you bring to the table? Uh, you know, it's quite countercultural when I look thinking about Christian leadership and leadership in a Christian community. I want you to know, can we go into We're constantly looking and praying for godly leaders. And one of the things that we're constantly asking the Lord to provide are men and women who fear the Lord above everything else. Firstly, that they have a relationship with God. They fear God most. But their relationship with others is trustworthy, meaning that they not only trust in the God of the Bible, that their very character is not to stir trouble. And what they say and what they do is focused on what will honour God the most. Not only that, they represent God's people, and that's what the storyline here says. And you know what? It's unlike any kind of worldly structure. It's actually kind of cultural. A spiritual community is quite different. There is that picture of authority that is clearly in the Bible. It's a challenging thing in Australian culture. How do Aussies find authority? We, I'm sure, it doesn't happen here, I'm sure. Many of us probably think the speed limits are recommendations, right? No, it's the law. We struggle with authority. Actually, it's not just an Aussie thing. I think it's just a human thing. But that's how God has designed it. God in the Bible has designed elders and deacons, 
leaders to use their gifts and various gifts from various backgrounds for the building of this church. I want you to know the Christian worldview is not a democracy. Let me say that again. The Christian worldview is not a democracy because we serve one king who has all authority and we bow under him. Dear friends, that's not a democracy. We're under his authority and God in his grace brings people to lead his people with a common goal to point people to him. It's an immense responsibility to be a leader at any church, any Christian organization. Character is far more important. Character is what matters. That is a view and awe of who God is. A heart to point people back to who God is and what he has done. I'm very thankful for the leadership at Canterbury Gardens Community Church. I've been in meetings where we've wept your hearts. I don't know if you know this. And I, I know the guys here will probably not prefer me to say this. I'm saying it's not for us, but it's glory. We have a church directory that we pray through by name. Because we love you and we want you to know and love God more. And I'm sure you... I'm openly saying we're not perfect men. I'm sure many of you already know that. (laughs) We are looking for others to join us. Would you pray that God would raise leaders who fear him most? At the very heart of this is also a display that Jethro himself has experienced God's grace. But you know what he does? It's a real powerful picture Here is a man who sees what the problem is and he realizes something. He becomes other focused. He's not focused on himself. He's not worrying about grumbling or anything like that. He's actually looking, hey Moses, how can I help you? He's other focused. It's very contrast to the people of Israel who often would grumble to Moses. It's a powerful picture. So Jethro's work is done. When they arrive at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes to speak to God. And in this conversation, the Lord reminds Moses of something, and he tells them to go and tell the people of Israel this. Look at me, finally, verses 3 to 6. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It is the very story of Exodus. God has rescued them. Now he's calling them and giving them a specific identity, who they are and what their role is as a group of people. God unpacks for them the past, what he has done, through to the Egyptians, how he's carried them. He reminds them of the present reality, what is expected of them, that is to live in obedience to him and to keep his covenant. But they belong to him, they're his treasured possession. He has purchased them out of slavery. He unpacks for them what he plans for their future, that is their role and calling. There's so much here, friends, but the question is why? What you will see in time, this nation are a group who are constantly forgetting who God is and what he has done. They're constantly forgetting of the powerful reminder of who God is. And the beautiful imagery that's given of eagles' wings is so rich. It is a picture of a bird that is both fierce, but also a bird of rescue. This is a display of who God is. He is protective over his people. He's nurturing and gives tender care to his people. It's a reminder of how God has rescued the people of Israel. But it's very clear they are to obey his voice. What we have is a picture of what salvation means. That you are rescued from slavery, but then you are now called to be his people to live for his glory. Rescue from slavery does not mean you can live however you please. 
And you'll see very quickly that they will fall into that often. They're called to keep God's commandments. They're called to keep His covenant with them. God is actually very clearly, and the language in this is so strong, He's demanding from them obedience. It also shows the weight of the very old covenant that is displayed here. There is a condition here. It's weighty. And the fullness of that will be shown in the coming weeks. But also, their very obedience displays to the nations around them that they're not the same. They're different. And you go into the details of those laws and commandments and covenants, it shows that how distinct they are. But also, they're a precious people. The special purpose. The language of treasured possession is indicating that they are royal property. That's a beautiful one even for today. It reveals to us that to be God's people means we have an identity. That in God's eyes, you are precious. Do you believe that, followers of Christ? That you are precious in His eyes. Even those of you who feel that you're constantly fumbling over over in your faith. Whatever our struggles. We are God's treasured possession. But here's the thing. This is the most powerful thing I find, is that it's not possible in your own effort and my own effort. The people of Israel experience God's graciousness because of who He is, that He is the God who keeps His covenant. He will never drop His love for them. He will pursue them no matter what. And you read the story of Israel over and over again, constantly dropping it, constantly forgetting the covenants, constantly... Dropping the commandments. That is the story of many of us, is it not? Myself included. Friends, I'm so thankful that the Lord deeply knows our hearts. He doesn't move away from us. He moves towards you and towards me. I mean, that language, the Lord is our banner. I don't think fully Moses could comprehend what that meant at the time. The fullness of this is revealed slowly throughout the Bible. And then the prophet Isaiah would proclaim this in Isaiah 11.10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The Bible proclaims that one who is our banner is Jesus Christ. That is to be truly saved, whether Jew or non-Jew, it can only be done through Christ. And what is his rescue method, friends, from sin and death, that enemy? Jesus comes to the world. He goes to that hill on that cross. He is lifted up, his hands stretched out, crucified on the cross for you and me, for our sins. Our banner is not some flag. Our banner is Jesus Christ. The very hope that we place on is not on ourselves, but on our Saviour. So in that moment when you and I feel under attack from the very own flesh and sin in our bodies, whether the world around us, we look to the one, our very rallying point and view is Jesus Christ, the one who is risen. Romans 8, 39 says... Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As is written, for your sake we are being killed. All the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things being present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Christ is our banner. God has indeed, through Christ Jesus, rescued us and calls us. Yes, now to also continue that job of proclaiming this good news around us. I wonder, for many of us, the reason we struggle with that, we forget to see what God has done for us through His Son and who we are in Him. 
Because of Christ, Christian friends, you are precious. All because of his grace. I know there are many of us, myself included, that grew up in circles that constantly were wonderfully good at telling you how dreadful and depraved and horrible you are. Dear friends, if you are in Christ, he looks at you very differently. You are precious in his sight. But you know what? This also means just because you're precious in his sight doesn't mean we can live however we please. The Apostle Peter would write it this way. 1 Peter 2, 9, 12 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As his people, he has made us his people from slavery of sin. He has saved us and we are his heirs, royalty, part of his family. But we're not called to sit back and wait for his return. We've been called into his service. We do this by living outward lives, living for his glory. So it matters what you live like at home, at work, at school, at uni, whatever season you're in. In a sense, when people see you at home, at work, at school, at uni, they ought to say there's something different about you. You're strange. It's very countercultural. We are called to be aliens and exiles. Now, I know there's been extreme versions of this. What's going on here is, though, that our hearts have been captured by the grace of God which means as we interact with with people who do not know God, we do so in love, grace, and truth. So that means, friends, that if you know Jesus, how you study, how you work, how you invest, how you save, how you give, how you raise your kids, how you live, how you eat, even, how you speak of others, how you retire, how you care for your grandkids, all have kingdom purpose. Because it displays to a world far from God whether you belong to him or not. And what's the motivation of all of this? Friends, the Lord has fought for us through his son, Jesus Christ, our true banner. The Lord is the one who alone can save you through Christ, and he has. And if we put our trust in him, we are his treasured possessions because of Christ. And this is what motivates us to live for him in this world. Even more are we blessed because we have the Holy Spirit, the helper, to help us to live how God has called us to. So, in what way, in what way are you looking to the Christ to be the banner? Who is God calling you to proclaim the good news of how he's rescued you from sin? Would you pray for us as a church leadership that we will continue to grow in the fear of who God is? And if you are a weary follower of Christ, would you embrace this truth because of Christ you are precious in His sight? Because of Christ you are precious in His sight. And if this is true, friends, that you believe all of this, does your life and my life Reflect that we are a royal priesthood in his service. Growing up, I uh, used to sing a song at the church that I grew up in. Uh, it was called Onward Christian Soldiers. Now, if this is not about whether hymns are good or bad, okay, don't, don't email me, just hear the words. Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the Royal Master leads us against the fort. Forward into battle, see his banners go. I don't know if you realize this. If you've been called to be a follower of Christ, it's wartime. It's not peacetime. Peace comes when Christ returns. You've been called into this battle. 
But the wonderful truth is you're on the winning side. Jesus declared it is finished. Because of that, we know our Saviour is good and gracious and He is one. Whether we're in seasons, whatever seasons, we've been called to look to Christ to be our continued banner that we look to, proclaiming the good news of Christ, what He has done, living lives outwardly to love and serve and proclaim the truth of this precious Saviour. Our God has not changed. The invitation and goal is still to worship Him with all our life. Our God and Saviour is glorious. And now he sits on the right hand of the Father as our mediator. And we can come to it at any time. And we are called to be his precious representatives in this broken world. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before your throne. We thank you that you are our true banner. We yearn for the day of your return. Until that day, help us to be a kingdom of priests, living for your glory proclaiming the good news of Christ till our final breath or till you return. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.